Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at the first eight verses, or verses 2 through 8. Verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send My messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who, one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so, righteous Father, I would come to You in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and utter the very same words He did to You that night before His death. And Lord, say, Lord, please keep us from the evil one. And Lord, our hope is that You will lead us through the fiercest battles. That You will not abandon us, Lord. We recall Your promise that You would never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, I pray that You would... Lord, let us see Jesus. Let us hear Him as we heard in the first hour. Lord, we're going to concentrate our time on the One who is preparing the way for Him. But... Lord, His life is such a challenge to us all. And I pray that in it we would be helped. Lord, I pray this hour would be transformative in the lives of Your people and in the lives of those who know You not. Would You meet with us by the power of Your Spirit for the glory and for the sake of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. So yes, our, our first message in Mark we uh, sought to use as kind of an introduction and we looked at this first verse, this first opening statement of, of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And quickly Mark transitions from this opening statement to referencing a Scripture about another man. Mark makes very clear that what he's, what he's about to write, he's writing about this person, Jesus Christ. However, he begins introducing this, this very peculiar man to us. It's interesting, all four of the Gospels start a little bit different. Matthew starts out with a genealogy. Luke starts out with the birth of Jesus Christ. John starts out the beginning of time. And Mark chooses to begin where Jesus' earthly ministry begins. And that's at the height of the ministry of John. And this would be the John who... Who's uh, from the from his conception to his birth had rather strange events that occurred surrounding his his whole life. Really, you might recall his father Zechariah, who was serving God in the temple, and during that time he's praying. His his wife is barren. He's praying that God would give them a son, and the Lord decides to let 
Zechariah know that this prayer has been answered by way of dispatching an angel named Gabriel. Zechariah, as I think we all would be, was gripped with fear, and yet he struggles to believe the news. That, and the news was not just that your wife's going to bear a son, but that he will be great before the Lord, and he will re, re, many will rejoice at his birth, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that God will use him to turn the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. And that he would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. But in Zechariah's unbelief, as we read there in, in Luke 1, the angel made him unable to speak until the day of John's birth. And you recall the account. Uh, Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, and upon her greeting, Little John in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, jumps and leaps in the womb at the salutation of Mary. Leaps for joy, Scripture says. Don't, don't ask me to explain that to you. I don't understand that. You don't understand that. None of us do. But, but God does. And, 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 and brethren, that's what God does when He comes to the scene. When God comes to the scene in power, this, He does things that are inexplicable. He sends angels. He makes men mute. He, he allows babies to understand theology. I mean, God moves in mysterious ways. You can't pin Him down. You can't put Him in this box we heard about earlier. When He shows up to the scene, strange things start happening. Inexplicable things. And we get to John's birth, and the Holy Spirit enables Zechariah to speak these prophetic words in Luke 1, 68 through 79. You have to turn there. But prophetic words about His own Son as an answer to Old Testament prophecy about this One whom John was coming to prepare the way for. And this is precisely how Mark begins his Gospel. Proclaiming John to be this man. Prophesied to prepare the way of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark starts the beginning of his gospel assuring us that this good news is by no means new news. This is not, not some newfangled idea, some invention of man. No, this is something that has deep scriptural roots. This, is, this didn't come out of a vacuum. This is not some new wave or new trend or some new attempt to create followers. This, is, this has Old Testament roots. This good news is a fulfillment of prophecy which Mark cites for us here in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Now, the only difficulty here is verse 2 is not written by Isaiah the prophet. It's actually written by Malachi. In Malachi 3 verse 1. And yes... This is a place folks like to go to who are bent on finding what they think to be mistakes in the Bible and use such verses to disprove the veracity and errancy of Scripture. But the reality of such arguments, are they're rooted in just willful ignorance. We really don't need to get too excited over the fact that verse 2 is a quote from Malachi because verse 3 is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Which say, we're in Isaiah says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight 
in the desert a highway for our God. Yes, when we look at it with our ESVs, we go back and we compare uh, the quote. It's not exact. It's relatively close. Not exactly the same. But we don't need to be alarmed by that either, brethren, because that's often the case in our Bibles. It's often the case because, number one, New Testament authors were quoting Greek translations of the Hebrew, uh, predominantly the Septuagint. And uh, Jesus often did this. And secondly, we're reading, we are reading English translations of another language. And so you do have some measure of variation simply due to the translation work. Even so, comparing this ESV text in verse 3 to my English translation of the Septuagint, Isaiah 40 verse 3 is almost an exact quote. Now, all that to say, despite all the, the language differences and challenges and, and translations, uh, you know, translating exact statements or exact phrases or thoughts, our Bibles are stunningly accurate. And I think this passage, I, I wasn't really planning on this, but I, th- I think this passage provides a, a good opportunity just to briefly explain how our Bibles are written. Brethren, one of the, one of the beautiful things... Uh, about how God, I mean, brethren, God, it's, God is so wonderfully, think, think, about the, think about the Trinity, think about Jesus. You have, you have this being who's 100% man and He's 100% God. And we have a hard time grasping that. I mean, how, how can He be equally bo- both, be both and, and still be God? It's kind of like that with Scripture. I mean, this is, this is the word written by men. Men penned this. They, they wrote it. But it's completely from God. I mean, how can God use fallen creatures to write and record His holy, perfect word? He has. And, he, and, he, and, he, and it's because He is using fallen, finite creatures to record His word. We have, we have differences in the way things are recorded. That doesn't make it errant. It makes it fully 100% the hand of man and 100% the hand of God. Fully inspired by the Spirit. There's a a reason why we have four Gospels, right? There are four different perspectives on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. All of them true. I mean, God could have given us only one Gospel and wrote it out in stone with his, His own finger and making exact precision, every detail, every event to the utmost accuracy, leaving nothing out, putting every single thing in it about the life of Christ. But He just didn't choose to do that. He chose to use His people to convey His truth and give us what He wanted us to know and to obey. There is a faith element to all this. Each author uniquely has their own perspective and yet it's uniquely true. Yeah, yes, the Holy Spirit inspired these men, led these men, but, but these are men who understood things and communicated things from their living perspective and experience. I mean, 
You've probably heard the car, the car accident example, right? We're out here at New Brownfields in Commerce, and, and you and I, or four of us, witness this car event. The police is going to take a report. He's going to get all, all of our eyewitness accounts, and they're all going to be different. But they're all going to be true based on what we see and what we perceive from our vantage point. You might say, well, yeah, it, yeah, that's true, brother, but we're not talking about perspective. We're talking about a perceived mistake. Well, let me just say this. God designed His Word to be written in everyday, common human language. And you know what? Everyday, common human language is not scientific, is it? It's not how we talk. We don't typically talk about talk in terms of just absolute scientific precision when we communicate with one another. We all often talk using general terms, using idioms. I'm, I'm a huge idiom machine. And, and it, you know, we, we exaggerate. We, we, we use hyperbole. I mean, Jesus did that. He did. Listen, Jesus was not actually promoting that you go grab a fork and pluck your eyeballs out and grab a saw and saw off your arms because of sin. That's, that's not what He really meant for you to do. He meant to drive home a point about the seriousness of sin. That, that's what the whole illustration is there. I think we need to be very careful how we, how we interact and understand the language of Scripture. You know, interestingly enough, I wasn't expecting this either, but this passage provides another example of this. For, we need to be very careful about, about laying our scientific grammar microscope on the pages of God's Word. Look at verse 5. This is a great example. In all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem... We're going out to him and we're being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now, when you read that, are you convinced that Mark is trying to convince us that all the country of Judea, without exception, in all Jerusalem, every single soul, every single being in Jerusalem went out into the Jordan to be baptized of John? Obviously, that's not the case. You know that. I know that. Mark knows that. So, so why doesn't Mark use the word like most or many or instead of all? Well, this is a great lesson for us in our Bible reading, isn't it? All doesn't always mean all, all the time. It doesn't. That's true for Scripture, brother. And it's true for Scripture because it's true for everyday language. And that's how the Scriptures are written to us. Uh, I've used this example in the past. We moved here in 1994. And um, obviously, I, was, I, was, I, was, I didn't know anything about the Spurs. I was not a Spurs fan. I wasn't even a basketball fan for that matter. Didn't know them. Didn't really care. I come from the land of Pistons. And I wasn't a huge basketball fan. But they, this was years after they were a really good team. They were winning championships in the playoffs. And I'd watch games when they get in the playoffs. It was interesting, you know. But I come down here and Dennis Rodman is traded to the Spurs. And, you know, he's making all these headlines with strange escapades with Madonna and all this. You know, next thing you know, he's got green hair and red hair and orange hair and, and blonde hair. And, and that was strange in that day. Um, but, but, but then I find out David Robinson's a Christian. And so, I, you know, it developed some interest for me. There was a, I think there was a Sports Illustrated. He was talking about the seven deadly sins. And I was like, he's talking about all the pressures and temptations in the NBA. I, mean, I, just, I grew a lot of respect for him. He had a, he had a tremendous testimony in the NBA as, as 
a valid testimony of being a Christian. So then they draft Tim Duncan. And all of a sudden, the Spurs become this elite team. And in 1999, this city who had had been long waiting and thirsting for some kind of champion to praise and celebrate, well, they got their awaited opportunity, long-awaited opportunity in 1999 when they got into the NBA Finals with the Knicks and won. And this city came unglued. After that last buzzer sounded, all of San Antonio took to the streets. I mean, I remember I-37 became a parking lot, a celebration. Everybody was outside hooting and hollering and rejoicing, this joyous rapture. And I can't, It's amazing that nothing destructive happened. I, I think it's probably the only city that's ever happened. It was pure celebration, pure... But listen, when you hear me say, all San Antonio took to the streets. When you hear me say everybody was outside celebrating, you understand what I'm saying, right? You don't think I'm communicating that every single resident in San Antonio was outside or was out celebrating. You know, we know that there's some that hate basketball. I'm sure that night there's men, women that had to get up in the morning, didn't even watch the game, didn't even know who won till the morning. But generally speaking, using language like everybody or all is appropriate language to use because it accurately represented that scene that night. It really did. That's, that's the same picture Mark's painting us right here. Mark's not concerned about precision in his reference to the Old Testament, getting back to this verse here. That's not his purpose. His purpose was to identify John as the fulfillment of what the prophets had declared long ago. And rather than listing all the prophets he's actually quoting, because I'm actually some people believe that, that Exodus 23, 20 is being loosely alluded to here in these two verses, 2 and 3. Even so, Mark is simply attributing his prophetic reference to the most prominent prophets, Isaiah. That, that's not errant, that's stylistic. In fact, some have said that that was a rabbinical tradition in that day. That when a rabbi spoke of more than one prophet, collectively, he would reference the greater prophet. So essentially, Mark grabs two prophets and grabs two statements from two prophets in the Old Testament and attributes it to one. Mark's point is Jesus' ministry begins by way of scriptural prophetic fulfillment. Detailing the exact quotes and the exact sources is not Mark's aim here. Fulfillment was his aim. And incidentally, all four of the Gospels do quote Isaiah 40, verse 3, showing you the prominence of Isaiah's quote. Well, wrapping up on this point, I would just say to you young preachers, um, brothers, be very careful about straining out the gnats of Scripture don't overly constrain biblical authorship to some scientific precision in the use of words. It gets you in trouble. This is where I think the modern trends and emphasis on expositional teaching can go awry and get into dangerous territory. Yes, there's definite danger on the other side of the spectrum. But we need to be very careful that in the name of accuracy... We don't overanalyze the words of Scripture beyond their intended meaning. 
But what we don't want to miss here, brethren, (laughs) is the strong emphasis in which Mark starts his gospel on the deity of Christ. I never put this together before until going through this. Let's just turn back maybe 20 pages in your Bible to Malachi. I want to look at the context of Mark's quote here. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We see that quote referencing John, but the, the context is quite revealing. Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will, set, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Who's this verse describing? Just who, would it, who is it that this promised messenger is going to be introducing and preparing the way for. It's none other than the living God. That's what Malachi is saying here. Mark uses this text to introduce John as the messenger of Jesus. Who's obviously the one whom John is preparing the way for. You can turn back to Mark. And for the sake of time, we won't turn to Isaiah 40, but verse 5, two verses later, from the quote of Isaiah 43, Isaiah says, And the glory of Jehovah shall be revealed. That text is talking about Jehovah God, both of them. This messenger will be preparing the way for God Himself. And we miss that if we don't consider the context of those quotes. So, so Mark, he's only, Mark's only three verses into his gospel and he's already alluded to the deity of Jesus Christ three times. This one whose way is being prepared is none other than the living God. Verse 4, John appeared. Here, quickly, John or Mark identifies the prophesied messenger as John. John appeared. And his appearance brought just as much strangeness about it as and strange events as did his birth. First of all, he appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what is this? Baptism. What is baptism? And it includes this repentance. And it's only being done in the wilderness. And there's forgiveness of sins being granted. I mean, what are we to make of this statement by Mark? Again, we need to lay aside our gnat strainers here. Because just reading this, it can almost sound like Mark saying, that the act of baptism is a means of forgiving sins. I mean, have any of you read the Gospels and, and thought, you know what, where does this thing of baptism even come from? <laughs> There's no sign of it whatsoever in the Old Testament. It's introduced to us here in the New Testament just like this as if we should understand it and expect it. 
That's always been intriguing to me. So I figured once I got into this text, it's going to shed more light on the subject. And, uh, and you know what I found? Well, some of it suggested that the origins of baptism come from the sacred baths or ritual washings that developed during the intertestamental time or the second, period, uh, second temple period time of Judaism. Particularly with the Essenes of, of Qumran. And some have even argued that it was common practice for the Jews in Qumran near the de- who were living near the Dead Sea to baptize Gentile proselytes. So if we, we, we wanted to be Jews, we wanted to be part of this thing, they'd baptize us. The problem with that is that the evidence is very scant and it appeared to be very unique to the, to the Qumran community. Not, it was not a regular Jewish thing. So, and those baptisms were self-washings. Whatever tub it was, I mean, you were washing yourself. It wasn't the activity of one submitting themselves to another to be, you know, dipped down into a tank or a tub or a pond or a river. From all indications, this baptism of John was a new thing. In fact, it was so unusual, he got labeled John the Baptizer. And what is clear is the word baptize. It literally means to immerse, to plunge, to fully dip. This was no sprinkle fest going on at Jordan. John wasn't calling all of Judea and all of Jerusalem out to a river so he could sprinkle them with a hose. Or he could invite them to some holy bowl and splash water on them. That's that's not what was happening. You pick a river and you come to a river to get in the river, right? That's what was happening. No doubt about that. But not only was John's baptism new, it was also unique. Like just about everything else in John's life. His baptism is not the same as the New Testament Christian baptism. John's baptism was preparatory in nature just as his ministry was. Just like John was a forerunner to the arrival of Christ, his baptism was also a forerunner to Christian baptism. Mark is very careful to distinguish John's baptism as a baptism of repentance. John's baptism was a baptism for renewal and repentance. We read there at the end of verse 5, and they were being baptized by John in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John was calling out Israel's sins. And if you look at Luke and you look at Matthew, he was not shy about doing that. He's calling out Israel's sin and calling people to confess and acknowledge their disobedience to God. And and this baptism was symbolic and a symbolic expression of that reality. It was a baptism of repentance because it was an expression of people turning back to God. That's the primary meaning of repentance in the Old Testament. It was one of of turning back and one of expressing sorrow or grief. Yes, it also carries the idea of changing one's mind, but, but the Hebrew expression is far more nuanced than the Greek expression. And because that's so, I think, I, I think we need to be careful of oversimplifying what repentance means in the New Testament by simply reducing it to a change of mind because, just because that's the definition of the word used in the Greek. I mean... Surely repentance does mean a change of mind, but similar to the example we just had of the word all. We don't want to think all means all all the time, right? 
And we don't because this is a word that has Old Testament roots. This wasn't invented in the New Covenant or the New Testament. Anyway, there's more that could be said on that. We'll talk more about that when we get to verse 15. But, but here John is calling the Jewish people to come back to God. A nation that had strayed. He's calling them to turn away from their current disobedience and trusting in their external self-righteous religiosity and start afresh turning toward the coming Messiah. Yes, it's a call to change their minds, but to do so in confessing sin and turning from their wickedness and embracing the Messiah who is about to be unveiled. And by doing so, doing that, their sins would be forgiven. Surely the forgiveness of sin spoken here in verse 4 is the result of repentance, not baptism. The baptism was simply an expression of their sins being washed away by their turning to the Lord in repentance. Then Mark provides this brief description of John in verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, things just get more and more strange with this guy. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. This is one odd bird, this John. I mean, everything about him is strange. He wore camel's hair for clothing. That, that was his wardrobe. And this wasn't no three-piece camel skin you find at Nord, Nordstrom's or something. This is, this is about the roughest idea you could have of a camel skin, skin and hair, boom, made into a, something you could wear. This is almost as unusual in John's day as it would be in ours, brethren. That's why, that's why John's, or Mark's making note of it. This wasn't common attire. And, you know, John wasn't worried about he, he Obviously, he wasn't entering any kind of fashion shows. Overly concerned about his appearance. Something we all do well to reflect upon. Nah, I find I find John Baptist a, a great challenge to my life. How much am I preoccupied about how I look? John wasn't dowling himself up in the mirror and, and before he before he went out to preach, combing all his camel hairs in one direction and put, hitting it with a little hitting it with a little bit of hairspray just in, just to keep them in place. He wasn't running down to the Sanhedrin getting the latest and greatest preacher garments and you know get the one with the wide fringes and the fancy tassels and all preoccupied with how he looked. He wasn't. He's very content. With, he was far, far, far more concerned about someone else being more visible in his life. The one whose way he was preparing. Oh, brethren, in all of John's weirdness, he is such a great example of the kind of simplicity and pure devotion to God that lends itself to usefulness and fruitfulness. Now, we don't want to be weird for the sake of weird. You kind of get that out there. I want to be as odd as I can. I remember, I remember my friend came over one Halloween and he, he was John the Baptist and just the goofiest thing. I said, we don't want to try to be goofy. 
we look at John's life and I, I think, how much time and, and money and energy am I pouring into things that really don't matter at the end of the day? I just find it him a great challenge. I mean, look at the guy's diet. For crying out loud, he's eating insects. Bugs and honey. Picking up bugs, throwing them on a hot rock, and dipping them in honey. That's, that's, that's what we're told his diet is. And Luke tells us he's full of the Holy Spirit. So he wasn't complaining about it. Not if he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he ain't. And most of us have lived long enough. Oh, my mom was on one diet after another. We, most of us have lived long enough to see one diet fad after another. And this is the one. This is the answer to vitality of life. It's going to take care of all. Oh, it's preventive of cancer and strokes and diabetes. And you know, it's, it always promises to be the cure-all. And where's the locust and wild honey diet? I never heard of that one. I haven't seen that one being promoted. But, but what's the Lord doing in having His servant, His prophet, dressed like this and eating like this? I mean, what's the point? Well, number one, no doubt, this is, there's symbolism taking place here. There's nothing about the ministry of John that appeals to the flesh. Nothing. It wasn't flesh that was going to be draw, drawing people to John. No. It's going to be the Spirit of God. The Lord is seeking to make a clear distinction here between setting this messenger for His Son apart from all the religious elite, the elite leaders of John's day, but secondly, John was not only a prophetic forerunner of Christ, he was a prophetic fulfillment of Elijah's coming as well. The very last words of our Old Testament Scriptures say in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, they say this, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree or utter destruction. We heard John this morning, those of you that were here, preaching on the Mount of Transfiguration. Just a couple more verses later, where John stopped. They're coming down, and the disciples are asking about Elijah. You know, they just saw him up there. It's like, what is it? Moses is there and Elijah? They're wanting to fall down and worship him. And they're gone. And they're, so they're provoked by the question. They're provoked by this statement by Malachi. I thought Elijah was coming. And Jesus answers him. And he says, behold, I, I, I tell you, Elijah is to come and restore all things. But Elijah's already come. And they didn't recognize him. And he's speaking about John. John was beheaded at that point. And you see, John's ministry, really, I mean, John's ministry mirrored Elijah's in a lot of ways. Number one, both were prophets of God who preached repentance and caused, called Israel to return to God. Both lived simple lives and wore the same clothing. Both dwelt in the wilderness and in solitude. Both had a lapse of faith, but quickly recovered. Both were fearless men who rebuked kings. And both were greatly hated by the queen who sought their lives. Both men had tremendous influence over the people of Israel. Both were anointed with Holy Spirit unction and power. I mean, there's some very unique things attributed to these two men. I mean, Elijah was taken up into glory within a chariot of fire. 
Maybe we read these stories and sometimes they seem so fantastical. Brethren, can you imagine? I'm preaching to you and a chariot of fire comes blowing into this door and sweeps me up and takes me right out the door. What are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, James is going to have to come up here and try to explain that to you. <laughs> this really happened. It happened to a living human fallen creature like you and I. But it was unique to Elijah. And then John. Oh, to have a testimony like... John had this testimony of the living Christ. Jesus said this about John, among those born of women, there has not arisen, there's arisen no one greater than John Baptist. What an incredible testimony that is. Wow. So, so you have these unusual men who lived unusual lives and they were unusually used of God. And I wonder, it makes me wonder, how much our own usefulness is hindered by our own enslavement to comforts and culture. That we're just not willing to forgo or let go. John, John and Elijah, they were just free men. They were free. I mean, clearly living for something other than this world. That's so, I mean, that is, that it, their lives speak of this, it's abundantly clear that they were living their lives for, for another, another place, not this world. Well, verse 7, John's message. And he preached saying, After me comes one who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Here's the thing that stands out about John's ministry. His humility and Christ's greatness. After me comes he who is mightier than I. There's no question. There's no question in John's mind about what he was called to do, the purpose of his calling, to exalt Jesus Christ and to, for him to take lowly place of a servant. I mean, listen, John received a lot of attention. I think we missed that. John received a lot of attention. In fact, I think he had one of the most successful, if not the most successful ministries in the New Testament era. I mean, all of Judea and Jerusalem was going out to hear this man and to be baptized by him. I mean, who else can that be said of? Bringing their offerings of righteousness, as Malachi puts it, which was with their repentance. But it, brethren, it never went to his head because his heart was rooted in the glory of God. This, this friend of the bridegroom, as he terms it, rejoice, he rejoiced to hear the bridegroom's voice. And he, he, he describes Jesus' arrival as his joy becoming complete. And as much as he was bold, he was very humble and knew his place. I mean, it was his statement, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Oh, if we could just take those words home today. Jesus, please increase in my life and let me decrease. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie His sandals. And, and again, this statement gets lost in time and cross-culture. It's, 
Loosening people's sandals and washing their feet was the work of slaves in that day. And it was dirty, filthy, disgusting work. They weren't taking off Nikes with socks. They were taking off sandals and the only pair they had, they wore every day in the dusty, filthy roads of Judea. You can imagine the dirt and the grime and the sweat and the smell from that feet of those first century people. John is speaking here in the highest terms of Christ and the lowest terms of Himself. Do we do that? Do I do that? Verse 8, I I have baptized you with water, but He, speaking of Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John's baptism was symbolic and it was temporary. It was pointing forward to a more permanent, powerful reality that was about to dawn on all believers. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. This would be Mark's way of expressing the giving of the Holy Spirit in new covenant regeneration. This basically the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27. I mean, what John is promising right here is the very thing Paul's setting forth in Galatians. The gifting of the Holy Spirit so believers can live out a life that is pleasing to God. As they live walking by the Spirit and honoring this Messiah, this Jesus Christ. Well, let's, let's close our time here turning to Matthew's account of this. Matthew has almost exact words that he uses of Mark's, but he, he adds a few more details. Um, and the details I want to look at are the things he preached. Just briefly look at this. Matthew chapter 3. In one of the statements there in verse 2, we don't, Mark does not record, and his message was the same as Jesus, as we'll see when we get to 15. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 7. Read down at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able of these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I get the strong impression John would not be welcome in most churches today. Seriously. Clearly, he's not loving by modern standards. Too judgmental too harsh, doesn't fit the desired mold, too obscure and out of touch. He doesn't dress hip. He's, I mean, he's not afraid to call people out when he's preaching. You brood of vipers. And that's bold. Imagine if I called, looked at somebody and called him a brood of vipers. John did it. He looked right at you're nothing but a dead tree, and God's coming with his holy axe, and he's going to cut you down. And no amount of religious talk or religious ties is going to save you from his axe on that day. Not going to happen. I mean, when you examine John's ministry and his message, it is spot on with Jesus and Paul. He calls sin for what it is, 
He doesn't hold back. John's very persuaded like Paul. You're going to reap what you end up sowing. You will. If you're not sowing to the Spirit, you will reap corruption. That warning is everywhere in Scripture. You will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, what language? What an image that is. That's, that's, that's terrifying. And contrary to what many would suggest, God, God, think about that. Listen to John's message. And then Malachi informs us that God used John's words to draw fathers' hearts to children and children's hearts to the Father. With these great words of judgment, that's what, that was happening. That was the, the result of what the Spirit was doing in their midst. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, the the prophetic expectation of when Messiah came was this. He's going to come bringing the Spirit and judgment. Those two things. And that's what John is declaring. The Holy Spirit for the repentant and fire for chaff. The chaff who are not. And I just close asking you, which are you? There's no, I mean like Jeff said earlier, there's no third choice here. You're weak or your chaff. No other options. You're of the Spirit or you're of the flesh. And listen, if there's one thing I've learned in the last 48 hours, it's this. You play with sin, you're going to get burned by it. You're playing with fire. And fire burns. And some burns you can recover from and some, other, some you don't. And burns you are able to recover from, they tend to leave permanent scars. When the Lord comes and visits, there is a call to repentance. And that requires humility. See, He must increase, you must decrease. In fact, Isaiah, if you keep reading there, in that same context, the verse he's quoting, he says, every, every, hill, what is it, hill be, every valley will be lifted up. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. Speaking about people. Speaking about the proud and the humble. The intention of judgment and, and it's, actually a, it's actually a mercy that God comes and shows us, this is what you're headed for. I'm offering you My Son. I'm offering you escape. My Son bore your sin on, his, on your behalf. I'm offering you an escape from the judgment that's coming. There's a certain judgment. I mean, oftentimes, even in the Old Testament, God was sending prophets to warn, to warn, to warn. What happened in Nineveh? They responded and God responded in mercy, right? That's the whole point. The warning of judgment is to humble man and to cry out for mercy. And when you do, 
You, fi you find it. That's the intention. And so what will it be? Will you be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Or will you be baptized with fire? Father, I pray Your blessing on Your Word. And Lord, thankful for the servants You raise up. And thank You, Lord, for the, the challenging life of Your servant, John. Lord, make us devoted like Him. Lord, let us take the place of humility like Him and that You would ever increase in our lives as You continue, Lord, to humble us. And we want that, Lord. We want that in our lives. May You be exalted in Your people. May You bless our time of fellowship now. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.